Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Sociology podcast channel. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Jody Edward Ginn, author of East Texas Trouble, The All Red Rangers Cleanup of San Augustine. Oh, hello. How are you doing today? Hello, Deidre. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm doing well. Well, let's begin by you telling us, how did you start this project? How did this book project begin? Thank you. That's a great question. And it began thanks to my great-grandmother, Daisy May Hines Carr, who told lived to be 96 years old, didn't pass away till I was 20, and we were very close. And she shared with me through my lifetime stories about her younger brother, who was a Texas Ranger, and uh, went into a town in East Texas and cleaned it up, she said, and was given a set of engraved pistols as thanks. And so many years later, after I myself got into law enforcement and I met my first Texas Ranger, I asked about how I might go into researching just as a family project um, as to his service. And this Ranger gave me some pointers and I started on my research and long story short, it turned into a new career my doctoral dissertation, and now the book, East Texas Troubles. Wow. Can you describe to the audience the connection of how was life doing the 1930s with that gang going around against the white population and the black population? Absolutely. That's the crux of this story. Even in the beginning, the the, the first things I heard about were white-on-white violence. And But after getting into the research and the records, and especially the court cases, I found that this entire um, instance, these troubles, was that the root of them was that these individuals uh, in that community started taking advantage of local black citizens who, under the Jim Crow era laws and culture, did not have access to the courts for redress uh, for crimes of, you know, that whites committed against them. And so these over the years, this gang kind of built their power, taking advantage. These folks are sharecroppers. They're the descendants of former slaves um, and they're mainly sharecroppers. And so they would that's when they would especially get hit is the time of year that they would sell their crops. These guys would show up. They would either rob them on the highway uh, on the way back from the gin or they would um, if they missed them there. They they'd go to their house and they'd make up phony charges. Some of these guys had law enforcement commissions even and used that that power to intimidate and um, and say, oh, you got to pay me a fine or I'm going to take you to jail. And so they would extort money out of them that way. And and one of the oddest but, but very common crimes, they'd literally just pull up, they'd pull up with a wagon to, to one of these folks' property and they just back up the wagon and they get their animals or their implements or whatever they wanted, they load them up and say, thanks for keeping that stuff for me. And they drive away. And that was, that's very much survived in the local oral traditions. But then I actually found case files were 
of the real people who suffered some of those very same crimes. Wow. Can you stop, tell us the story of Governor Allred and the Rangers? Yes. So James V. Allred was a progressive governor who gets elected on a platform of law enforcement reform. And the reason is, is that many governors in the decades before him, worst of all, uh, Miriam and James Ferguson had become notorious for for politicizing law enforcement, giving out the prestigious Texas Rangers commissions in particular, and also something known as a special Ranger commission, which wasn't the same, but it still had law enforcement power. Some of the gang members in San Augustine had some of these Ferguson special Ranger commissions, and they would give those out to people who were not qualified. Some of them even had lengthy criminal histories, but as long as they were political supporters, they could get a commission. So you stop seeing as many qualified and reputable lawmen getting appointed as rangers and other state law enforcement and more political cronies and even criminals taking over. And that's what allows this gang to really solidify its power by the early 1930s. Now, explain the significance of the first two black victims and witnesses that went to trial and how they had to report. Right. So these two, we had Edward Clark and you had, um, oh my goodness, um, I'm terrible at that one. So I'll, I'll think of her name in a minute. It feels so bad. Um, but, but it was a, was a middle-aged lady and then a young man. These are two separate cases that were the first. And, and in both of these cases, the first thing to know is that they never reported these crimes when they happened because they had no one they could report them to. Like I say, the, the local law enforcement was corrupted. Even if they weren't actively involved with the gang activities, they were too intimidated to, to stop them uh, because some of those guys, like I say, had law enforcement credentials too. Um, I mean, these guys had gone so far as to beat up a Secret Service agent in, the, you know, in front of hundreds of people uh, at the town, at the, at the fairgrounds. So, I mean, you know, a, a local black citizen is not going, who, who are they going to go to? They had no one to turn to. So the only people that knew anything about this by the time the All Red Rangers came in is, is these, these folks' family and friends. And so what that meant was is that at, at some point the, the Rangers found out about these and they had to have found out by a member of the black community, not, you know, because no one in the white community knew. And then they had to gain the trust of that community. I'm, I mean, imagine, first of all, it's Jim Crow. There's, there's that obvious element of, of, of lack of trust right there. Then you've got this, this history of nearly a decade of this abuse by law enforcement there locally. So they're not just going to trust any, any white officer that shows up at their door. So there was this period, there was this building of trust that most community members that, that survived through those times uh, insist there had to have been a liaison in that community. Somebody had come to recognize that the All Red Rangers were trustworthy and convinced other members of the community to come forward. And that's how those cases eventually come to trial. And they testified to that, that, hey, the Rangers came to us, heard our story, believed our story, investigated our case, and brought them to court. I thought it was so interesting about the Black and white community members coming together to help clean up things. How do you think that really got started? Well, honestly, I think it's because um, enough of them finally found out, recognized what was going on, and uh, became personally affected by it. But most of all, honestly and sadly to say, 
it, it was really the increasing uh, white on white violence that uh, that was occurring more and more often that they finally had enough. So it's kind of that point where, you know, it, it takes that kind of, um, you know, it's it's kind of like today where sometimes, you know, uh, chronic crimes don't get addressed until somebody prominent gets affected, one of their family members, somebody they care about. I think that's really the crux of that. Yes. And you described so well the communities. One specifically was the pre-emunition community. Can you explain to the audience what you found in that community? Um, pre, pre-emunition? I'm not um, the little black community that was really segregated. Well, the the entire black community in in, in that region uh, was segregated. In fact, I mean th- th- that that lasted well into the late twentieth century. Um, you know, it just you know, you're the East Texas is the, the part of Texas that's most culturally tied to the old South, and therefore you know held on like much of the old South did to a lot of those cultural traditions, you know, longer than other parts of the country. Um, and so you, you didn't have, you, you had some one-on-one communication by individual, like, like landowners and their tenants. I mean, some of these families were connected, uh, you know, that they were, you know, descendants of former slaves and former slave owners and had personal connections. There were some, um, relational connections there was, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty well known that, you know, that there were plantation owners that, um, had relationships. Some of them were not consensual. Some of them may have been consensual. It's really hard to determine consent though, when you're talking about somebody who's in bondage, but the, but because of this though, there's actual, you know, blood relationships between some of these folks and, and, and those ties, uh, did continue over generations. And so, um, but, but very much it was a, a, a stratified community and, and, and as, a, as a whole, um, blacks and whites did not interact with each other on a social or political level um, outside of these very you know, individual relationships. Yes. And you had so many really interesting stories. Tell us the story about Edward Clark and Cook. Yeah. So Edward Clark... And, and now you're talking about the young man that was was extorted, right? Okay. And and I point that out because early on, when I first saw the arrest, uh, the, the 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 complaint sheet that named Edward Clark, well, I assumed that he was somebody else. Again, before I really understood the full dynamic of what was going on, and got into all those court records, and I got some early, you know, limited documents, and they mentioned this earlier this this Edward Clark who had been assaulted and so forth, and um, I thought it was a white man named Edward Clark, who was a very prominent individual in that town. His family still prominent, and uh, and and he, Edward Clark himself became one of the key figures behind the rise of Lyndon Baines Johnson, and was uh, served as ambassador to Australia under Johnson. But the Edward Clark that was in those court records was a different, yeah, younger man, uh, a black man uh, who was taken advantage of uh, and and assaulted and extorted uh, by members of the gang. And um, again, he's one of these, these folks. He never told that to anybody. The Rangers found out about his story, came to him. And, and I, I, can't, I can't overemphasize the leap of faith that took on Edward Clark and the other members uh, of that community to, to, to step out there. That was a big risk. They didn't really have guarantees of how that might play out. 
and what kind of retaliation that they might face uh, in the wake of that. So, so their courage uh, at, at that time and place, I mean, today we just, we just don't have, uh, until you really study this stuff, you just don't have that full sense of, of how oppressive that environment was and therefore what level of courage. I mean, I don't think there's a man on earth that can claim more courage than, than the black citizens of San Augustine in 1930s and during the cleanup. Now, you talked about a 23-year-old teacher, John. Yes. I thought that was a, a really sad but interesting story. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that? Yes, John Gann, a very, very tragic story. A young man, uh, very well respected. He was a teacher in the community. He was from Nacogdoches, came over to San Augustine to teach. Um, very beloved, very respected. Had a young uh, child, um, an infant, and... Um, there, there's some different stories as to what exactly led to the conflict and his murder. But the, the most prominent one, the one that I found the most evidence for is that one of his students, a young girl, uh, was dating the most vicious member of this gang, uh, a guy named Tom Burleson. And he was just known as a cold-blooded killer. Even, his, even some of his rel- relatives testified to just how psychotic he really was. He was just out of control. And apparently she was seeing him to some degree and mentioned this to this teacher. And the teacher, John Gann, tries to talk her out of it, tries to say, you know, that's you know, that's not a good idea. And unfortunately, the naive young girl that she was, instead of taking his advice, she actually goes back to Tom and tells him what this teacher said. So t- Tom goes on the hunt and he has uh, several friends with him and they catch him right on the town square, right in front of the Clark down stores, you know, very well-known store the run by the brother of Ed Clark that I mentioned earlier. And, and, uh, and they trick him. They, you know, they act, they start acting friendly. And then one one of them says, you know, shake my hand. So he shakes their hand they grab a hold of him. One of them punches him and then Tom shoots him. And that's one of the trial transcripts I found that, I mean, has graphic detailed testimony uh, by people who watched the entire thing. And uh, now he was dead from the last shootout uh, that occurred that led to the All Red Rangers being sent in. But uh, but but his other uh, accomplices got convicted on those uh, for that, you know, as uh, being involved in that murder. One thing you did say in the book was that 1935-1936, was considered a time of complexity. Can you elaborate more on what you're seeing about complexity? Well, because th- there, this is just such a unique situation. You know, this is Jim Crow, um, and as I mentioned in the book, you know, this didn't—they didn't overturn Jim Crow in its at- entirety. I mean, really, much to the to the opposite. I mean, a lot of this stuff. They, they actually had a segregated waiting room in the doctor's office there, one doctor's office anyway, into the 1980s until NAACP found out about it and started threatening lawsuits. So, I mean, I don't want to overstate, but they did, you know, at least draw a line. And they said that, while you know, we don't consider blacks in our community equal. We're not going to tolerate just wanton abuse. And, um, and again, maybe that's simply because it 
finally overflowed enough into the white community. But regardless, you know, substantial numbers of the white community yeah. did finally stand up and say enough's enough. Because up until this point, they're 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 afraid to convict, even when it was crimes against whites. They they won't, you know, grand juries won't indict. So you, and you can't impanel a jury to, to even hear a case, much less convict them. Witnesses won't testify. I mean, they're leaving town. Um, and so the, the local criminal justice system had just ground to a halt. And, and until the Rangers came in and convinced the entire community, black and white, that they could, you know, protect them from these people that had, had oppressed them for so many years, uh, did that dynamic change. And again, so it takes a year and a half. It takes all of this time to investigate these cases, to take them to trial. I mean, we're talking about more than 40 individuals. We're talking about hundreds of years of prison sentences. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's just a, a massive undertaking, um, that because there's so much going on and they're having to, to, to investigate cases that happened in many cases years before. And, um, and so you've got all these complicated dynamics between whites and blacks within the criminal justice system, between the different layers of law enforcement. Um, in fact, that was one of the arguments that the defendants made, they try to say, well, this is just because a new governor came in and, you know, and they've got the political upper hand. That's all that's going on here, which was, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. But uh, other, the only truth to it is, yeah, a new governor came in and and put in lawmen who would actually enforce the law as opposed to political cronies. And so all these dynamics, this is what's going on on the state level. They're, they're, they are totally modernizing, shifting. So while they're doing all this investigation in San Augustine at the same time, they're taking action at the legislature and the governor to create the Department of Public Safety that we know today, take the Rangers out from under the adjutant generals, the highway patrol out from under the highway department, put them together, create some additional bureaus and modernize state law enforcement um, in a way that had never been done before and, and depoliticize it you know, to an incredible degree that had never been done before. So all these dynamics are at play. Do you see any similarities today that we're dealing with in that book? Well, first, as a historian, as, as you know, serious scholars of history tend to avoid trying to use history for any other purpose other than to learn about history. Um, so we're kind of loath to draw comparisons because even if there you can pick out some similarities, they're 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 never going to neatly fit into today. And so I would have to honestly say no. I don't say anything today. I, I mean, obviously we still have uh, you know significant racial issues uh, going on today, but um, I don't see any comparison between today and the Jim Crow era because. The, the number one thing is is the voice that you know, African Americans in our country have, whether you know whose view is correct or not correct or most accurate about today. Notwithstanding, um, the, the the African Americans of, of the Jim Crow era had none of that. They had no voice uh, that wasn't uh, you know um, you know led by by whites that's just the reality of it and, that, and to me I, I find that just a a, a, a dynamic that you can't it, it just there it makes it impossible to make a comparison yes 
I, I was just thinking along the terms of we're seeing so many people involved with the drive-by shootings that's occurring throughout the United States. And the gangs of that time, they were just going around, you know, killing and, and things of that sort. So that was something that I said, that's pretty similar. But in terms of race sure. relations, you're absolutely right. This is night and day. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time and I've enjoyed our conversation, but I want to find out what are you working on next? Well, my day job is I am the executive director of the Texas Rangers Heritage Center in Fredericksburg. And we are developing a museum uh, that will tell the history of the Texas Rangers from uh, basically the beginning of Texas history uh, because because they really predate what a lot of people think. These practices predate Stephen F. Austin, the Anglo arrival and all that sort of thing. So it predates all of that. It becomes all the way up to the modern day. Uh, this is a story I've, I've authored the script, but I've had it peer reviewed um, by several scholars um, and am um, in that process uh, so that this is a balanced and nuanced and well-rounded story that takes in uh, numerous perspectives. Um, and uh, acknowledges that not everyone who has served as a Texas Ranger, like those ones in San Augustine and others in that time period, there were lots of people at different times that never should have been given a Ranger badge, especially certainly did not live up to the mystique or the myth or the or the ideal of, of what uh, many people believe the Texas Rangers have, have been. Um, um, but it, it, and it will show that evolution and it shows it because they started out as a military unit and um, and so that's a, that's a really different dynamic, but they slowly evolved to law enforcement in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that 1935, that creation of DPS was the really the final major uh, stage of evolution into uh, what there are now as an elite investigative unit on par with, you know, the FBI and Scotland Yard and so on. Uh, and in fact, many in law enforcement hold them in higher regard today than some of those agencies. Um, and so um, we're going to be telling that entire story, um, well, as much as you can in a museum environment and, uh, and in a modern setting using technology uh, of various types and so forth. So that's my day job. And then on the, uh, on the publishing end is I have two books in the works. One is a book um, dealing with and focusing on the victims of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, I was involved a couple of years ago with a Netflix film about that. And you can see me on YouTube or Netflix. It's called The Untold History of the Highwaymen. And it's talking about, and that movie focused on the lawmen and their effort to take down Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, but what I want to do is a book that focuses on the victims because that's what often gets left out. And I even know some of the descendants I've come to know through my research, some of the descendants of the victims. And I mean, th those those deaths in San Augustine was the same way. I know some there that, that, that the murders that happened it, it, that it's not just that person got murdered and that's the end of it. Their families were shattered and, and, and shaped for generations. And so that's happened uh, very much so with, with Bonnie and Clyde. And so that's one of my books. The other is I found the Rosetta Stone on the Sherman riots, the Sherman race riot and lynching of George Hughes in 1930. Um, that's another incident that Frank Hamer, who was, you know, became most famous for the Bonnie and Clyde uh, takedown. Well, he was also there and tried to stop this, um, uh, lynch mob and they burned the courthouse down around him. He actually shot people trying to stop them from storming the courthouse when they couldn't get in the courthouse. They burned it down around him. 
And uh, it's all, there's a whole massive story there. Um, people have spent generations from that community trying to pass off blame on outsiders, but I found the red set of stone that names all these people and they were not outsiders. There's a marker movement right now uh, trying to get a historical marker, which the local county judge is apparently blocking. Um, and, uh, but the, I, I hope that gets through because that, that needs to be commemorative, um, commemorated. Um, there's, there's been much myth, uh, especially in that community perpetuated about what actually happened that day. And I'm hoping to, um, uh, before too long, publish the detailed truth of it all. Wow. I'll be watching and waiting for all those exciting projects. And thank you again.